Okay, so here we are on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem's temple a few days before Jesus' crucifixion, and here's Jesus explaining the end times to his disciples. Uh, The first thing that he told them about was the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 AD. The second thing that he told them about were the times that we're living in right now, times where wars, rumors of wars, disease, famine, and natural disasters increase in frequency and intensity. Persecution will also be attached and escalate to and in that time. But Jesus said the end is not yet and that we're not supposed to freak out. We should not be alarmed. The end is not yet, Jesus said. The third thing that he told them, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, is that a final great tribulation, seven years long, according to other passages in Scripture, will come upon the earth before Jesus returns. It will be a trial like none other that the world has experienced. Noah's flood, Egypt's plagues, Jerusalem's invasions cannot compare to the final great tribulation. And apparently in the middle of that great tribulation, there will be an event, Jesus said, called the abomination of desolation. There will be a man of sin, a world leader and ruler who demands to be worshipped in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And the earth's citizens will give him that worship. But after all this calamity that we've looked at over the past few weeks, Jesus said in our passage today in verse 24, he said, after that tribulation, after all those events, he will return. And he presents his return in an ominous way from the earth's perspective. He talks about a darkened moon in verse 25, the moon not giving its light, stars falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens shaken. This is similar to how John presents the return of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Jesus comes riding on a white horse because he's the true white horse rider, not the Antichrist, but Jesus Christ. And he returns on that white horse in Revelation 19 and he judges the earth. Okay, but rather than recount all the events that John lists in the book of Revelation, let's consider the details Jesus points out right here in Mark. Look at verse 26. He says, first, they will see the Son of Man coming. This means that Jesus' return will be, when he comes, a visible event. And this is the repeated testimony of Scripture. All throughout the Bible, over and over again, we learn that Jesus will come in a visible way. He'll return for his followers. He'll take us to himself Uh, to where he is, John 14, 3. He said he would return unexpectedly and suddenly. He said he would return in the glory of his Father and with his angels. And the angels, his ascension, remember when Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, there were two angels that were there who spoke with the church that remained, the disciples who remained. They said that Jesus would return in the same way that he departed. That means personally, bodily, visibly, And suddenly, Jesus will descend. And the apostles, they received those messages from Jesus and the angels, and they went out and declared that truth. Peter preached in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10, about the sudden return of Christ, and that Jesus is now in heaven until the time of restoring all things comes. Paul also joined in on this message and spoke of Christ's personal return. 
talking of trumpet blasts and the church's removal in a blink of an eye in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. John also got in on the action and wrote of Jesus' personal and sudden return and discipled the church in 1 John chapter 2 and 3 to be ready for Christ's return. And Hebrews and James and Jude, they all preach the same message as these men. Jesus is coming personally, suddenly, and visibly, and publicly someday. Revelation 1 verse 7 says it plainly. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes or the people groups of the earth will wail on account of him. That's what Jesus said. He said that he won't just come for everyone to see, but he will come uh, in the clouds. So he'll be present for everyone to see, but he'll be in the clouds. That's how he's going to come. Uh, And for me, at least, this is where I plan on being, in the clouds with Jesus when he returns. John describes him coming with Revelation 19, 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. So there are armies with him in the clouds. And what I take this to mean is that his people, the armies of heaven, are with him when he returns. We are with him when he comes. Now how can this be? How, can, how does this happen? You know, if we're here, Jesus is in heaven and he returns, how can it be that we are with him when he comes? Well, many, of course, will be with him already because they've already died in Christ. So they're present with the Lord. But what about those who are alive when he comes? Well, it says that in the Bible that he will at some point call them up to himself in the clouds. Look at this little verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So when Christ returns, of course people will be with him already because when we die we are in Christ, we are now immediately present with the Lord, but their bodies will be re- resurrected, raised in that moment, and any believer on earth will then also be caught up to the Lord in that moment as well. Now some believe that this will happen in the middle of the tribulation. Some people believe that this will happen immediately before Christ's coming. And others believe that Jesus will call his church out of the world before the time of great tribulation. And I've shared this with you before, I'm in that camp. I think before the time of wrath comes upon the earth, God will rescue us from it because we are covered by the blood and the Son of God has experienced the wrath of God for us already. So that's what Jesus said. He will come in the clouds. But Jesus also points out in verse 26 that he will come with great power and glory and then also in verse 27 that he'll send his angels out to gather his chosen people from all over the earth. Now, some people might think when Jesus says this that he's talking about the rapture or something like that. He's going to send out, he's going to gather his people together in that moment. 
But I don't think here he's describing the rapture, but the collection of those who came to believe in him during the period of tribulation in the last days. What is meant by his gathering? What happens when Jesus comes? Well, other passages tell us and give us the answer. Jesus' return will lead to a time of judgment. In Revelation 19, John describes Jesus returning, and immediately after Jesus comes to earth, the beast and the false prophet and the kings and captains of armies on earth actually attempt to war against Jesus. The beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. Everyone else, all the kings and captains who fought against Jesus are killed in battle, and it's not a difficult war for Jesus to win. And this leads then to Jesus ruling and reigning on earth, on this planet, literally and visibly, for a period of 1,000 years. And because it happens for a period of 1,000 years, a a millennium, we often call this the millennial reign of Christ. And so I thought today we could pause our study in Mark and go over to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 20, to read about this millennial reign of Jesus. Let's read it in verse one through six of Revelation 20. This is what happens after Jesus returns. He says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but listen to this, they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, after those events are recorded in the book of Revelation, there is one final rebellion. Jesus quenches it, and then after that, there's a new heaven's and a new earth, a new Jerusalem that we receive and exist in forever. That's the place that we would classically think of as heaven. But it all occurs after, according to Revelation 20, Jesus rules on earth for a period of 1,000 years. Now, as you can imagine, thinking about Jesus ruling on earth for 1,000 years, reading that in Revelation 20, uh, this concept has caused no small amount of controversy within the church. You know, my view is that this was the received position of the early church, that they all believed, just like every Jew believed at the time that Jesus came, that one day Christ would rule and reign literally and visibly, not invisibly and spiritually, but literally and visibly on earth, and that he'd one day return and rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. I think it wasn't until a few centuries later 
that theologians began to wonder if the thousand years that John mentions six times in Revelation chapter 20 was figurative or spiritual. But over and over again, like I said, John says a thousand years is the amount of time that Jesus will rule and reign. And I take this to mean, wait for it, that Jesus will reign on earth for a thousand years. But what's the purpose of Jesus returning to earth and reigning here for a thousand years? Why not just come, end everything, and graduate us to the new heavens and the new earth right away? Why why should we wait for this thing? What will happen during those thousand years? Why will they be so special? All right, for me, the answers lie in the pages of the Old Testament. I actually have an orange highlighter that stays on my desk in my home office, and every time I read a verse in the Old Testament that just looks like, feels like, seems like a promise that is millennial in nature, I just highlight the number next to it in orange. And my Bible by this point point is marked up with so many things that I believe that God is going to do and fulfill during this millennial reign of Jesus. From the beginning, God made promise after promise about a coming age of glory, peace, prosperity, righteousness, and justice. He promised that he would reign over a golden age of human existence, one where mankind is devoted to God. And many of those Old Testament promises must still come to pass. They will, I believe, during the millennial reign of Jesus after his return. So what I want to do now is show you six things the Old Testament says will happen during this future reign of Jesus. And here's the first one. Number one, Christ will visibly reign. Christ will visibly reign. Many people are going to survive the great tribulation. Not everyone will be part of the armies that Christ defeats. And those people will be ruled by Jesus. He will rule over remaining humanity, along with all of us, saints who have received our new bodies in him. From Jerusalem, which is often called Zion in the Bible, Jesus will lead. And people will love Jesus's leadership. Look at this prophecy in Isaiah 2, verse 3 and 4. It says, many people shall come and say, come, Let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and, they shall, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up against sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore." This has never happened. This has never occurred. It will occur during the millennial reign of Christ. Isaiah here is describing an age of total peace, one where Jesus is leading and judging the nations. This is a day that Zechariah prophesies of. In Zechariah 14, verse 9, he says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. David, of course, was promised a descendant who would sit on the throne forever and his kingdom would have no end and Jesus is that descendant so the first element of the millennial kingdom is that Christ will visibly reign can't you get excited about Jesus being the one in charge 
Number two, here's a second element of the millennial reign of Christ. The church will reign with him. The church will reign with him. Believers today, if you're a Christian right now, you'll be with Christ tomorrow, leading and living in the golden millennial age. Just think about some of these statements from someone no less than Paul the Apostle himself. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, he said, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. This is the idea that is pictured in Revelation chapter 20, which we already read. Not only does Christ reign, but remember Revelation 20, verse 4, John also saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And it says in Revelation 20, verse 6, that they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, reigning with Jesus. Now, every summer, many of you guys know, my family goes up to Lake Tahoe, and we like to go to a little town on the northwest side of the lake called Tahoe City. And in Tahoe City, apparently, the famous actress, Helen Mirren, has a house right on the water there in Tahoe City. I've never seen her, and I've never seen her house. But we have a little joke in our home. And the joke is, is that I'm trying to get Helen Mirren's house. Not on this side of eternity, but what I tell my kids is, I'm trying to do a good job as a pastor. I'm trying to do a good job as a husband. I'm trying to do a good job as a father so that in the millennial reign of Jesus, when I'm reigning with Christ, he'll make me the mayor of Tahoe City and he'll give me Helen Mirren's house. (laughs) I know it sounds ridiculous, but it just serves as the point that Jesus is gonna literally rule on and, and reign here on earth and we are going to rule with him. You know, there are plenty of passages in the Bible about crowns and thrones and rewards that Jesus will one day give his followers. These are crowns and thrones and rewards that are given to people that are bought by the blood of Christ. You can't earn your salvation. It is a gift of God. Nonetheless, once you are his, he wants you to be faithful. And I wonder if it's during the millennial reign of Jesus that many of these crowns and thrones and rewards will be meted out in our experience as we reign with Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm hoping for a promotion. So the second element is that we will rule with Jesus. But number three, I'm so excited about this one. Here's a third element of the millennium. It's that spiritual life will arise in Israel. Spiritual life will arise in Israel. You know, Jeremiah spoke of a day in Jeremiah 31, 33, when the law would be written, not just on our hearts in the new covenant, but on Israelite hearts in the new covenant. Ezekiel had a vision in his prophecies of dry bones that came to life and the spirit of God were was breathed into them. It's about Israel. One day, this revival will occur. Zechariah described a future day when Israel would have a spirit of grace and prayer for mercy, mourning over Jesus, whom they rejected at his first coming. And and Zechariah said it like this in Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day, there will be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin 
and uncleanness. It's going to be a time of renewed vigor and passion for God. And Israel will rise to prominence, partly because Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. You know, Paul said in Romans 11, verse 25, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel during this current church age. But one day, it seems, that that age will end and God will revive his original people. And this revival seems to start in the tribulation and come to full completion during Christ's millennial reign. But that leads to a fourth thing that's so exciting. It's not just Israel that will have spiritual life. Spiritual life also, number four, will come to the nations. The world is going to love God. The prophets made it clear that the earth will experience during the millennial reign of Christ a population explosion. You know, with the curse suspended, you know, all the pain of childbearing and early death, all of that sickness, disease, it'll be suspended by Christ, or at least greatly decreased by Christ. And so because of that, Isaiah and Jeremiah tell us that infants will no longer die, and that everyone will quote-unquote fill out their days, so that death at age 100 will be considered an early death during the millennial reign of Jesus. And that means that the human population will grow like crazy. And that population, that new population, uh, which is brought about by people who survived the great tribulation, they will grow to love and adore Christ. Listen to what Micah the prophet said in Micah chapter four, verse one through four. He said, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, It shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree. It's an emblem of peace and prosperity. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. In other words, because everybody's seeking God, There's going to be joy and happiness and biblical justice throughout the whole world. It will be a time, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 11 11 verse 9, that the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's going to be a beautiful time of revival. Honestly, I'm looking forward to it because it's everything that as a pastor I'm working for. But I know that it will ultimately occur on that side of Christ's coming. But a fifth element, and part of the reason why so many of these great things will take place during the millennial reign of Jesus is this. Number five, Satan will be bound. We read that there in Revelation chapter 20. He will be bound for the entirety of those 1,000 years. And at the end of those 1,000 years, the books will be opened, and those who belong to death and Hades, along with Satan, will be thrown out of God's presence and into the lake of fire. But he will be bound for 1,000 years. Now, it's interesting, you know, on earth today, how, does, how do many people use Jesus' name? Many people use Jesus' name as a swear word when something bad happens in their lives. You know, hit your thumb with a hammer, and why is it that people want to say Jesus' name during that time? It's like this, 
backwards way of, of, of insulting him or accusing him of the evil that occurs here on earth. But when Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne and when Satan is locked up, I think humanity is going to discover, wow, it really wasn't Jesus doing all that bad stuff to us. There was another figure, and I'm so glad he's locked up because Jesus is good and Satan is bad. So he's going to be locked up for a thousand years. But here's a sixth and final thing I want you to see about the millennial reign of Christ. Nature will be reborn. Nature will be reborn. The earth's topography, according to the prophets, will be rearranged. Isaiah 35.1 teaches us that wilderness and dry land will become lush and fertile under Jesus' leadership. Thorns and briars will be replaced by huge trees, which will provide clean air and shelter. Crops will grow with ease. Food, according to Joel 2, will be plentiful. You know, the, the whole reversal of, there will no longer be vast amounts of continents that are poor at growing crops. The whole planet will be abundant in growing crops, and we'll need it. We'll need all that food for all the people. Everybody will be able to afford to eat at Whole Foods when this day occurs. Not only that, but the animal kingdom will also be changed. There are prophecies that indicate that the predatorial nature of many animals will be reversed. Wolves and lambs, leopards and baby goats, lions and calves, bears and cows will intermix, according to Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65. Children will be able to lead even the strongest predators in our current world in that one because they'll all become herbivores. Just like a child can lead a cow along, they'll be able to lead a lion along. And we will no longer have an adversarial relationship with the animal kingdom as even wild beasts and poisonous snakes become docile and safe under King's, King Jesus's leadership, according to Ezekiel 34 and Isaiah 11. It's just incredible. I, I wonder if we might even be talking to animals during that time. Remember when the snake spoke to Eve and she didn't say, hey, what are you doing talking to me? She just talked back. I wonder if the curse will be reversed and we'll have a communion with the animal kingdom like our hearts desire. Don't tell me you don't talk to your dog. I know you do. Maybe we'll be able to communicate in a stronger way during that time. I, I don't know. I might be reading into things, but the natural world will be reborn, including the flourishing of human life. Like I said earlier, human beings won't die young anymore and will be healthy for much longer. Of course, believers will have their new resurrected bodies and we will not be able to die. Isaiah says that there will be much less disability in Isaiah 35 verse 6. Christ's presence will curtail cancers and make us new. The dominion that we lost at the fall of Adam will be restored. So perhaps you can't tell, but I'm really excited that this day is coming. There's so much beauty and goodness and joy in this current world but there's also so much dysfunction and disease and poisonous thinking. So I celebrate the idea that Christ would come to unite all things to himself, Ephesians 2.10. I can't wait to worship, create music. I hope I'll be a musician 
in that time and, and eat pizza in the new earth that he oversees. What a world it will be. I know a new heaven and earth will come after that thousand-year reign of Christ, but a thousand years is a long time to watch Jesus get the job done right. I think about this coming day nearly every time I witness the ineptitude of a political regime where kingdoms and dictatorships and communism or democracy have failed, Jesus won't. All these elements were spoken of in the Old Testament. So this is what the people of Israel expected when Jesus came. And they weren't, wrong. they weren't wrong. They just didn't know that the Christ had to first suffer and die. They hadn't understood the prophecies about a suffering Savior. But those prophecies had to be literally fulfilled, just like the prophecies about his reign will also be literally fulfilled. Jesus never corrected that line of thinking. He talked about thrones with his disciples. Look forward to the restoration of Israel. If his literal reign on earth was not the plan, he had a lot of correcting to do, but he never did it. Everyone thought that was what was going to occur, and Jesus never really combated that line of thinking. Instead, the whole story of Jesus' life kicked off with the angel Gabriel going to a young girl named Mary and telling her, you know, one day your son, who God is going to put in your womb, he's going to sit on David's throne forever. Her expectation was that this would actually, literally occur. And she was never disabused of that notion. One day, I believe Jesus will rule and reign on earth for a thousand years. You can count me in, man. I can't wait. All right, so that's our, we've diverged over to Revelation 20. Let's go back and finish our study in Mark chapter 13. How should we live today? We've looked at the second coming of Christ. We've looked at the millennial reign of Christ. How should we live today? Verse 28. Jesus said, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, verse 29, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, here's Jesus concluding his teaching about the end of times. And he uses a, an analogy. Uh, he talks about fig trees. Fig trees, they become tender, he said. They put out leaves. When it happens, you know summer's coming. So what he's saying is, is that the generation that's alive to see these things take place will know that the time is near for Christ's return. He said, at the very gates. What this means is that a generation will one day arise that is the last generation. And when they see the abomination of desolation that we looked at a couple weeks ago, when they see the great tribulation actually occurring, they will know that Christ is coming soon. They will not completely pass away, Jesus said, until Christ returns. And Jesus went out of his way to say this promise is fixed. Heaven and earth might pass away one day, but his words will not pass away. His promise is firm. But let's conclude with seeing his final exhortation, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. 
Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Jesus said, stay awake. This is a great conclusion to this whole beautiful Olivet Discourse, this teaching from Jesus. Well, the first thing that's kind of fascinating about that last paragraph we read is that he says that the son will not, does not know about the day of his own return. Jesus said only the father knows. Now, maybe Jesus was saying that from his earthly vantage point as a human, he's so identified with us that from that vantage point, he did not know the day of his return. But maybe in, in glory, he understood and knows when he will return because, of course, he's divine. Or perhaps he so successfully identified himself with us by becoming one of us that he permanently divested himself of that particular privilege of his deity. I, I don't understand how it works, but at least when Jesus said those words, when he spoke them, he did not know the day or the hour of his eventual return. Now, of course, this makes it humorous at best and really sad, grievous at worst, that so many people like to speculate about the timing of his return. Jesus didn't know. <laughs> There's nothing in his closing exhortation that gives off a hint that we should try to discern the date of the second coming of Christ. For me, I just personally think entirely way too much time is spent reading the events of the day, asking, is today the day? Is now the time? And I think you can be eager for his return without stargazing and overly consuming the news or the current events of today. Not even the sun knows, so how could we? But Jesus is clear to exhort us to get to work. That's what his final illustration is about. He talks about a master who goes away on a long journey, Jesus, of course, is our master. He's gone away for a long time, and one day he will return. And just like the servants in his story should have stayed awake, so should we stay awake. But what does it mean to stay awake? That's Jesus' exhortation, stay awake. It means to work until the master returns, to do our job at his people until Jesus comes. We're not to be apathetic to his coming on the one hand, nor are we to prognosticate about the timing of his coming on the other hand. Instead, we're to work hard until Jesus arrives. You see, watching is working. Too many people have thought that Jesus wants us to lazingly but longingly look to the sky, watching until he comes. But just think about Jesus' illustration. How insane would it be to think that that's what he wants us to do? Would a master of an estate be stoked if his servants just sat in the window, looking out the window until the master comes home? No, the servants watching means that they're going to work. They're going to do their jobs until the master returns. Watching means to be working. So as his church, we have work to do until Jesus returns. We have our jobs, we have our ministries, we have our walks with him. We're to stay diligent, we're to grow in Christ and tell and live out the gospel 
for the communities that we live in because one day our master will return. And when he does, we don't want to be asleep, but we want to be at work doing his will. So if you're not working, get to work in Christ's kingdom.